This podcast contains potentially adult language, adult themes, definitely drinking, and possibly sexual context. Listener discretion is advised. Ready? Welcome to Drinking with Authors. I am your host, Erica Lance, and with me as always is... Austin Scott Collins. Our amazing guest today is Mark Vickers. He is the author of Tollkeeper. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Very happy to have you. So, Austin, is there anything new and exciting in the author world for you? Well, you know, I think having Mark Vickers here is new and exciting. That is that is accurate. What are you drinking today? Well, today I have got uh, an interesting combination that you provided me with. Uh, it started out as uh, rum and coke, and now it has turned into rum and coke and crown. How about you? Rum and coke and crown? <laughs> Was there rum in that bottle before? I'm not even going to ask the question. That's fine. I am back to my usual honey jack and apple cider because I have a problem, but that's okay. We're not going to talk about that on this podcast. And Mark, what do you get to drink today? You had a request. Yeah, I asked for hard cider, but I got Original Sin Hard Cider, which I think is an awesome name. Yes, it is. That is the unadulterated... No, that's not right. (laughs) Never mind. It's cool. It's cool. We're moving on. I think Original Sin is adulterated. That's the whole point. If it was was unadulterated, there would be no sin, right? I'm I'm not sure. That's way too philosophical for me. Let's begin. Mark, you are a writer. I am. How long have you been a writer? It depends on what kind of writing you're talking about. But in terms of um, just writing in general, I've been a business writer for most of my life. Um, Starting in my 20s and uh, going up to the current day. Now I'm 30? No. Um, You look 30. I I totally would have taken that. um, But I've only been writing fiction for... Actually, I've been writing short fiction over the years. I've had some stories and poems published and some essays, things like that. Um, but I haven't written a novel until recently. That's this novel, The Tollkeeper. So it's my first first novel. And um, they say, you know, write what you want to read. And that's kind of what I did this time. Very cool. So let's go back, because you said you've been a writer since your 20s. Did you want to be a writer growing up? I did. Um, I started off as a super dyslexic kid. Um, unable to read in my youth and then around third grade I got some help and I suddenly discovered reading which I couldn't do at all before or barely and uh, suddenly I was I was just became a really hardcore reader from that time we love hardcore readers you just like things that are hardcore well we also love readers let's not no that's true let's not discount that that's significant that is very significant I want to talk about the business writing versus fiction writing thing because, let's face it, in a lot of ways they're completely opposite, right? All the things you're supposed to do in business and technical writing are the very things you're not supposed to do in fiction writing. So does that cause you some uh, cognitive dissonance? You know, it, it does and it doesn't, but honestly, um, not everything is different. Like, you want to write fairly clean prose. You want to tell a narrative. You want to kind of get to the point um, with business writing. With fiction especially my fiction. Um, I'm a little more um, generous in the language, try to write more poetic uh, literary fiction. But um, in a way, I'm, I'm also trying to keep a story arc, a narrative, and I think you kind of do that with, with business writing as well, just in a different way. Um, 
And I, I do think that in business writing, you try to be fairly objective. And it's true that in literary writing, you're about as subjective as you can possibly be. So in some ways, you're right. In some ways, I think there's some similarities. Well, let's talk about this book, The Tollkeeper by Mark R. Vickers. So can you give us like the, the high level I thought you'd like to make give our elevator pitch. Don't we want the elevator pitch? Well, I, why don't we start with the most extravagant and then work our way down to the most condensed. So, since we've got time, <laughs> give, us, <laughs> give, us, give us the generous summary of the book, and then uh, we'll challenge you to do, like, the one-liner that you would uh, give not, to an agent or a publisher. Yeah, over. I'm not sure I have a one-liner, but... Um, <laughs> well, so you the, will by the end of this podcast. <laughs> So the, um, the more generous uh, version of it is that it's a story told by an a ancient being um, who's working as a tollkeeper in Florida. He is actually a... A literal tollkeeper. He's a literal tollkeeper, a Florida tollkeeper, um, but he's over a millennium-year-old tollkeeper. He's been around for a while. He started off in what we today call Norway. He started off as a... A troll, actually a half troll. It's kind of a long story on that in that area. Um, and he had some many sort of uh, adventures, kind of epic adventures uh, back then before he got to the new world. Um, and so the the book is really about um, the his origin story, going back over you know a thousand years, how he went to Norway and then Iceland how he became a slave and then not a slave, uh, then how he moved from Iceland to finally North America. Um, and it was shipwrecked. Uh, so he was one of the hmm. first immigrants to North America from, from Europe. But the other story is sort of a, a noir, Florida noir story. Um, and this it, is coming into the present day. It's coming into the present okay. day. So the, the chapters, um, there's one chapter that's past, then present, then past, then present. Um, so kind of the whole book is laid out in that way. So um, both stories are, are told in a fairly linear way, but we we definitely go back and forth from one to the other. Did you start with that structure of you know jumping forward and backward in time, or is that something you sort of had to introduce to make the narrative work? Yeah, it's interesting because the first couple of chapters I just sort of fell into it. I mean, the first couple of chapters I was going back and forth within the chapters, and I thought, you know, it'd be as interesting to start to tell it that way. So I kind of fell into that rhythm over time. So the first few chapters kind of go, they're both present and past, and then it sort of falls into present and past. That's very cool. Now, um, because Austin set you up for this, now you have to give the one-liner elevator pitch for this. Yeah, if somebody walks up to you and says, oh, you got a book, what's it about? (laughs) No pressure at all, but we're going to sit here quietly until you say it. No, so it's uh, about a it's an epic adventure of a millennium-old being who um, talks about his origin story in Norway, Iceland, and the New World, and a uh, current story that's a noir story about um, it's about kind of a, a land, a Florida land deal, and the, the need to um, make the land deal work for the good of the cosmos. Mm. So is it a one-part, or is this a series that you're writing? This is a one-part book, but I, I am writing um, some other books that, that are potentially related to it. So, And this is very much a, a literary fantasy, and the other books I'm writing are more of a straight fantasy. Um, I'm, not, I'm not as um, 
poetic and, and literary, and there aren't as many literary allusions as there are in this book. This book is is very. The, there's a lot of retelling of Volson's saga and the Eddas, and a lot of the stories are actually um, sort of satirical tweaks on some very old epic stories, which most people you don't have to know that to get to read the book, but that's the way it was designed. So you, you got all this Norse mythology, right? Yeah, I was going to say you have a blog about Norse mythology, do you not? I do. What is your blog name? It's called The Tollkeeper. Very cool. And, and how do people find it? Yes. Uh, this is shameless self-promotion no, as part fine. of this podcast. It's, it's uh, thetollkeeper.com, <laughs> so it's really easy to find. Uh, but I do I do blog, and it's, it's, it was originally set up for the book, but what I do is I um, blog and look at various myths and then try to see how they apply to modern conditions modern society and try to derive some um, modern meaning and ethos ethos from those old myths yeah now that's always a really interesting thing in fiction whether you're dealing with historical fiction or mythological fiction you've got an actual pool to pull from but then you got a story to tell and sometimes you need to deviate right right so there's always some tension there as far as like do i stick to the original text do i stick the original historical facts or you know, do I go off in a new direction, and, and how? So, right. you know, how are you constantly dealing with that as you're putting a story together? It's like how how true do I need to be to make this feel authentic, and you know, where do I take license and liberties? Yeah, um, I mostly take license and liberties. I I don't feel need to really be uh, super authentic to the original myth because most people reading the book won't have read those myths, like. Very few people are going to have read the Volson saga before they read this book. And if they do, they've just heard of some of the characters. They've heard of Brunhilde, and maybe they've heard of Sigurd. Um, maybe they're opera lovers and have heard some of that stuff from you know Wagner and stuff like that. So it, for me, it um, serves more as inspiration, and it serves more as an interesting way to set up similar conditions that the characters can react to. So it sort of lends structure. It's almost like, um, I'm no James Joyce, but if you've read <laughs> the Ulysses, you kind of know what I mean. He's kind of used the Odyssey to lend structure to his book. And it's I'm sort of trying to do something similar with at least parts of this book. Yeah, so it's, it's a ready-made framework, even though people who are reading it might not realize it's a ready-made right. framework. That's right. And sort of for me, it's sort of a cognitive framework, something I can work with sort of scaffolding some degree and it's also a way for me to to entertain myself Um, you know like how can I how can I you can't finish a book unless you can entertain I'm thoroughly entertained as the person writing this ergo it will be entertaining for the reader exactly I mean really I wrote this book mostly to entertain myself and um, if it's not funny to anybody else it's funny to me but um, it's it's one of those things where uh, you know I look at how you know Sigurd would have Uncovered Hilda in a, in a scene where she's um, asleep and she's covered up with all the stuff, and he has to get it off her. And trying to figure out how would that would apply to um, to a modern mythos, given given what I've put in here. Um, a lot of the the book is set around a, a Florida spring, which is um, supposed to be like the spring that is around Yggdrasil, which they used to call the Wells, and so um, it's sort of a, a sacred place that is sort of being impinged on by by various um, powers. Nestle. <laughs> Not to mention okay. any names. We to bring just, up something political in this podcast. We just got topical, I apologize. That's, just... That's very topical. <laughs> no, it is topical. 
We are not and fans of the Nestle Corporation it, at this moment in time in Florida. No <laughs> disclaimer. Hashtag no disclaimer. <laughs> but stuff like that mm. is, uh, part of it is sort of an eco-fantasy in that respect. Mm. Okay, so one of my questions for you is, why did it take you so long to produce a novel, do you think? Because you started writing at a very early age. You had a passion for writing. Why do you think it took you so long to actually do a novel? I say this as two people sitting next to each other here on this side that waited a really long time, too, so hashtag no judgment, but <laughs> why did it take you so long? I don't, I don't have a great answer to that. I think... Um, Part of it, I just had some um, time on my hands that I didn't have before, so I had some extra space in my life. I've worked really long hours most of my life in a variety of different jobs, and I was sort of in this this framework for a couple of years where I actually had time to work. I was running my own business, and so I could do as much work on that as I wanted to, and I could work on this as much as I wanted to. So for me, it was part of the opportunity. Now I'm back working flat out, but I'm also trying to set aside actual time to write, so I'm trying to be much more structured about it so I can continue to write. How long did Tollkeeper take you? Well, it's kind of, it's a strange thing, because I probably wrote the first um, couple of pages, maybe five, six, seven years ago, and then I didn't do anything with it, and then I kind of came back to it several times until I had a chapter and then I thought, I have no idea who this person is. They have no idea what's going on, but let me try to uh, figure it out. And then kind of went from there. I didn't, I did not have a vision of the book from the start. It sort of wrote itself. But you kept coming back to it. It kept I calling. I kept coming you. back to it because I liked the voice. You know, sometimes a voice captures you, and um, the narrator's voice. It's written in the first person, uh, first person past, first person present, and. Um, I really liked the voice. It was sort of an alter ego voice, a voice of somebody just completely irreverent and brutal and could get away with almost anything, and it had a lot of hard hard uh, chops in life. And um, so kind of the person you you might want to be if you're sort of a, <laughs> a, a troll or a very powerful <laughs> troll living among humans. Well, so. The 21st century is kind of a golden age for trolls, right? Actually, it's totally the book. I think it's a different kind of troll than Boston. We're talking true. about internet trolls. You know, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> but no, a lot of authors say this. It's like, this is the manuscript that kept calling me to come back. You know, this was the idea that would not leave me alone, so it's the one that got finished. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think once you... Once you found a voice, I think it's particularly true in a first-person narrative. I think a lot of first novels are probably first-person narratives um, because you kind of get captured by that by that voice, and um, you just want to see see where it goes. I think it's awesome also to see a first-person narrative because I think a lot it's that's hard to do is maintain an entire book in the first-person narrative and make it engaging and interesting. Because it gets very easy to get caught up in what the person is thinking all the time versus mm. the action of doing something. How did you avoid that? Because a lot of first person, first I can use words, first person is what I what the person like. You end up in their inner monologue versus actually the actions happening on the pages. You see that sometimes with yeah. first person novels mm -hmm. a lot. Unfortunately, if you don't get them edited, um, so how did? <laughs> 
just a point out for editors there. How did you avoid that particular situation where you weren't caught in what the person was thinking the entire time versus the action happening on the page? Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess the readers would have to tell me if I actually did avoid it. But um, <laughs> I, I think that I tried to keep it very um, action-focused. And when it wasn't action-focused, I, I tried to keep it... Um, Interesting from a literary point of view, and there's not there's not too much of that. Well, from my perspective, there's not too much of it. Um, I don't go on for pages and pages, just sort of internal monologue and hang hand wringing and whatever. Um, most of the chapters move from point A to B to C to D, so it's not it, it is a, an action novel as well as a literary novel. So um, I think that's how I've tried to do it because I wanted to keep it interesting to the reader. I didn't want to let it really bog down in the middle, and whether I accomplished that, I don't know, but that, that was my intent. I'm sure you've gotten feedback, though, from readers. What is the feedback you've gotten? Feedback has generally been good. You know, it's um, you know on the, the Amazon.com, most of the reviews are good. Most of the reviews are good on Goodreads. Um, there aren't hundreds of them. You know, there's more in the tens, but... Um, Maybe there are hundreds of good readers. I don't know. Anyway, uh, most of the... Most it's of the, best not to pay too much attention. Yes. <laughs> most, I, let's most, not quantify it. No, no, no. So most of, the, uh, most of those reviews are fairly good, but I also go from people that I, I know and respect, people that are writers, um, sometimes you know, professional writers or professors of writing, um, and I also count on Cindy, my wife, who is a, a comparative literature major, and she's a good reader and proofer and editor and she'll tell me frankly when something's you know not working very well so um she's sort of the first reader your lovely wife is here today i'm going to point that out i don't know if she'll talk at any point during this podcast <laughs> but she's here in governance of this situation that's what i've decided um i'm making up words as we go along what I, you know what is interesting is we had an author recently on the podcast who said something I thought was actually really profound, especially as I re-listened to it when I wasn't drunk. Um, but she was talking about how getting the critical review is almost the acknowledgement of the positive reviews. Like it almost legitimizes yourself because she looks at what the critical reviews say and looks and goes, are they mad about something I intended to put in the story? Mm -hmm. So screw them, if that's right. it, because she's not appealing to everybody. Have you had critical reviews of your story? Yeah. Um, I, I have had somebody who just read, like there was one person who just read the first chapter and decided it wasn't for them <laughs> and kind of panned the whole book, which is sort of annoying when somebody doesn't read the entire book. Like I would never review a book without having read it. Right. Um, so that kind of stuff happens, but still, everybody has their opinion. If they don't like the first chapter, so be it. The first chapter is sort of um, brutal and, uh, but also crazy and hopefully funny. So, that kind of stuff is not, not for everybody, but it's definitely my taste for as a Florida writer type of person. I think that's good. We were, I was talking um, yesterday to somebody, we were joking about reviews on like Yelp. <laughs> and there was a review on Yelp that said the food was delicious, the service was amazing, 
the lime in my Moscow mule was not as fresh as I'd like it to be one star. <laughs> not even lime. This was the review. And so that kind of tells you a little bit about how people review things. Because to your point, if you read a book and you only read the first chapter and you go, right. this is a horrible thing. Obviously, that's not your audience. So you kind of got to take that and go, cool story, bro. Well, you know, people <laughs> don't call the 1-800 number on the back of the truck. Because, like, I really love the way he merged. Yeah. <laughs> he stayed in his lane, you know. He was a perfect driver, just wanted he to call you. He maintained a you good know? following distance. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so. <laughs> it's it's true, though. So I think that, you know, if that's the type of critical review you got, you just got to take it and go, this wasn't the book for you. This, yeah, yeah. That, yeah. that guy obviously wasn't your audience. Or girl, don't discriminate. But it obviously wasn't your audience. Yeah, well, let, let's talk about audience. Let's um, do that. Yeah, let's talk about genre. How, how do you characterize this book, and who do you see as your sort of target demographic? Or is yeah, that something you try not to even I, think about? I did not think about that at all. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like, ah, I've got a book. I don't know who's going to read it, but uh, I've got a book. Exactly. How I've got a book, and I will find something that fits on Amazon when I publish it. Somebody's going to have to read this, right? But... Um, <laughs> Now it's. I wrote it to be um, first and foremost sort of a, a fun book for for myself to write. But it was it's literary fiction. That's how I I talk about it because there is a lot of um, literary structure to it and some literary type of writing to it. But there's it's, a mythological it's angle, so it's, it's like definitely definitely fantastical. Um, sometimes I refer to it as mythic fiction because there is a whole genre that most people don't even... Mythic literary fiction, maybe? Yeah, maybe mythic literary fiction. Some mythic fiction is literary, some it's not. You know, there's... Call Amazon, get a new category. Um, but, yeah, this might be number one. This, this should be number one in that category. <laughs> but Absolutely. It's also, it's also a Florida noir book, so, you know, it's if you like Carl Hyacin or some of those mm. people, there are elements of that. So it's kind of this amalgam of stuff, and it doesn't... It doesn't fit. As you know, if, if something doesn't fit a category super well, sometimes it's hard to even you know, talk about. But I intentionally wrote it as um, an amalgam of different genres because right. that's, that's what I like. That's what I like to read. Right. And this is the tension that drives authors and agents and publishers crazy, right? Because as an author, you're thinking, well, if it's like something else, I'm going to change it. You know, I don't want it to be like something else. That feels right. derivative and parasitic, right? Sure. Uh, and an agent is like, okay, well, who can I sell it to? You know, give me a genre, give me a subgenre, right? And you're like, well, if I felt like it fit neatly into a category, then you know, I would try to go off in a new direction because I want it to be fresh and original, right? Right. So yeah, that, I mean, that's th- those two are always at war with one another. And I, I think they always will be. I do think that there is more fiction these days that is this hybrid fiction. Mm -hmm. I think it's true. I think it also is, are you writing because you want to sell a million novels? I mean, all of us would love to sell a million novels. Don't get me wrong. But I'd be okay with half a million. Okay. Well, subpar. Not going to lie. Okay. um, The point, though, is are you writing because you wrote something that you're passionate about and that you, you actually put your heart and soul into? Are you writing something just to sell numbers? It's great when the two of them kind of combine and Mm -hmm. that happens but when it doesn't are you incredibly happy with your work or are you writing just to put numbers out there to get your sales up right it's two completely different uh undertakings isn't it i mean i guess in a in a situation where it's a it's a luxury to be able to write what you really want to write what you really care about right you know and if you if you write something you're proud of and you can just kind of walk away from it and say you know this is what i wanted to say and, you know, if someone reads it and enjoys it, great. 
and if not, hey, this is what I wanted to put on paper. So, I mean, do you kind of consider this a, a personal legacy at this point? Like, this is something I can now walk away from, and I'm ready to move on to my next project, or are you still kind of invested in it? No, that's... Personal legacy is way too highfalutin for, <laughs> for me. That was very you know, highfalutin. I was um, I wasn't sure where he was going with no, that, no, but, but I was gonna just cling to it. Well, you know, there's, there, there's books sure. you work on, and you say, okay, well, I did that with my life, and now I'm gonna go work on something else. Or is this still something that you're very much no, I, involved with? I I think I'm proud of the book. I'll you know maybe I'll go back in a couple of years and read it and not be as proud of it. But hmm. you know, just writing a book and writing a book that you feel like you enjoyed writing you feel like um some people enjoyed reading i i think that's something you know i don't think it's the meaning of life in itself but i think it's an accomplishment i don't think you should ever go back at your work that you did previously because this this is something that i think authors um can do easily but you can go back at your work that's where you were at that point and this is your best work for that point in time um you should more than anyone because if you write for a living (laughs) We don't write for a living right now. But if you write for a living, your work always gets better and better and better. I'm sure the first manual or instruction booklet or whatever you wrote when you were 20, if you looked at it now, you'd want to light it on fire possibly and take your name off of it and hope nobody ever reads it again, right? (laughs) But that's who you were when you were at that point in time. So I think, you know, the – the situation is being able to go back and look at your stuff and go, oh my gosh, I see these things. I would have done this differently. I would have done that. That's always going to be the case, but it's the next step. And if you have a passion and you love your book and you love what you wrote, I think that's really important. And it sounds like that's the case with your book is that you're very proud of the book that you wrote, which is awesome. And you're not looking at it going, oh, I wish that was never published, which I think (laughs) when you're under certain deadlines and certain agents and certain publishers that can change your work from what you originally intended it to be and that's sort of the joy in self-publishing is that you get to publish your actual work without anyone going no we want you to change these 10 things yeah to make it your work yeah so can we talk about your publishing journey um sure so the the publishing journey is is really that um i i wrote most of the book uh i went to writing workshop and got some people um, critiquing it and they they were suggesting that they really liked it um had some people saying well maybe we could send it to this agent and this agent um those things didn't go through sometimes people are like i don't know what to do with this um and right, back <laughs> to the back to the genre issue right who, yeah. do, we sell, part, who do we sell this to how do we define it so then I, I started um, shopping around to different agents, all, always in the fantasy. I never got to the literary group. I was kind of going to do that second. But after I kind of got through, and I had some interesting nibbles along the way, but most people were like, yeah, I'm just not sure we can. We know exactly what to do with this. So I, I decided, well, what the heck? I'm just going to publish this. We kind of have our, Cindy and I, my wife, um, kind of have our eye on publishing a number of things, not just um, my fiction, but but other types of books. So we thought, well, this would be you know one way to get started. So it was it was fun actually to once it was written, I had it professionally edited and professionally proofed, and the covers professionally done. So I don't feel like we cut any corners. I was willing to invest in it, um, and I also feel like we 
we tried our, our best to lay everything out very professionally. And uh, we did a lot of research about how that's done. So I did a lot of InDesign work, for example, which um, which is always interesting. And, that is very um, interesting. And so, I, I, I did not do well at that. Moving on. <laughs> Go ahead. No, no. So it's, it, was, it was once you decide to self-publish, even if you have feel like you have your own little publishing you know, house going on, which I'm not sure we do, but that's sort of an aspiration of ours. Um, I, I feel like it, it was a great journey to go through that. There's a lot, you feel like an entrepreneur. You feel like I really have ownership of this. I don't feel like I'm giving it away. It succeeds or fails on its own. And I think that's good. I, I, don't, I don't regret it at this point. Very cool. And with that, we're going to take a quick break and come back. Hey, thank you for listening to Drinking With Authors. We wanted to let you know that if you're an aspiring author out there and you'd like to be on our podcast, you can email us at drinkingwithauthors at gmail.com. Or if you guys have a question, comment, want to tell us some little tidbit of interesting news, you can always direct message us or comment on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We love that you're listening. We love that you're out there. And we look forward to hearing from you. You can yeah. tell me about your professional career. I don't think yeah. people are going to be as entertained by that, yeah. but do it. Yeah. <laughs> so let me interject here before I answer that question that I have 16 reviews on Amazon. I don't want anybody to think I was exaggerating. And I have 33 <laughs> you looked it up during the break. ratings and three reviews and Goodreads. So I'm not, I don't mean to exaggerate anything. Those are the numbers. I'm a researcher by trade. I want it, I want we're, we're, the, I want it on the record, baby. We okay. did math. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. So what I'm working on, I've, I've started uh, a lot of different books over the last couple of years. Um, like first chapters and seeing how that feels. What I've really begun and committed myself to is writing a trilogy of books in which the, the main character of this book is in, in these books. Um, but there's The sort main of a, character from The Toll Keeper. The main character from okay. The Toll Keeper is in these books. But he's what not, is the name of the main character from The Toll Keeper? Well, he has two names, uh, and his modern-day uh, name is Klaus, which is sort of a, you know... A, a, a kind of a phony name that he's stolen because he has no, you know, actual immigration cards or social security or anything like that. Um, his the name he generally goes by in the uh, the ancient world is Haller H A L L R Haller half troll is what um, the the person who kind of kidnaps him or takes him as prisoner and then turns him into a slave and then. Kind of freeze him later. Um, that's what he calls them because he's literally um, half human and, and half troll. So we actually, interestingly, I put that name from the um, Icelandic sagas. There actually is a half troll. That's actual name from um, the Icelandic sagas. So I kind of stole stole bits and pieces from everywhere. That's kind of where I stole that. Um, okay, you're, you're not stealing it. It's it's a reference. It's and, a reference. If it's, it's a, historical or mythological, it's not stealing. It's a reference. It's acquired. It's an acquired <laughs> name. I do have to ask a question in the middle of the other question I asked. One, because I'm drunk, and two, because I can. It's my podcast. Um, what is a tr- uh, troll defined as in mythological times? Because a lot of people consider a troll like a scary, ugly beast that hides under a bridge and... Um, uh, 
cut, you know, makes you pay money to do it. Or in Tolkien, one of my favorite lines in the movie is, oh, look, they brought a cave troll, which is, again, a giant ugly beast that beats everything up. That is literally my favorite line in any of those movies. Oh, look, a cave troll. Because I feel that's something I would actually say if we were in that circumstance. So with anybody. Um, what is a troll defined as in this, or a half-troll? What makes that character one of those things, or what is it? Yeah, I mean, trolls is a really broad term in uh, Scandinavian literature. And they can be really small, they can be really large, they can have magical powers, they can just be big, crushing monsters. Um, what he is, is uh, a very large human being, you know, seven-foot-something, and um, he's also kind of Partly stout, but because he he doesn't have all the same features as a normal troll, a mountain troll from whom he's his mother is descended, and um, they would have slightly less human features. So he he's sort of this amalgam. He can pass for human, but he's still a very odd looking, a very large looking human. Um, but he can get away with it. You know, people just think, wow, that is one weird tall. <laughs> Dude, um, so he passes, and he he is very uncomfortable in sunlight um, because he's half troll. A normal troll, of course, would turn to stone in sunlight. And so there's a part of the book where they're trying to discern exactly what his lineage is, um, the people who capture him. Anyway, so he's what I wanted to create was a character who kind of has a, a chip on his shoulder um, and is a real fish out of water. You know, like mm. he's just surrounded by people who are, who are not really, don't understand him or really not quite like him. Um, and he has a variety of different uh, weaknesses, like an aversion to sunlight and some of the other areas. But um, he also has some real strengths, like um, he, he's very powerful by human standards, for example. Um, he also can do certain kinds of magic, but he's really, really bad at it. Um, so it I, sounds I like what my my class would be if I was in charge of things. That I I do certain kinds of magic, would be terrible. I'm at just it. think this character sounds really relatable. In it the, is you know, very there's, there's things he can do, but he's really bad at it. And he's a fish out of water. I mean, right there, most people are going to read this character and think, hey, that's me. That is me, because I think that well, a lot of people feel like they don't fit quite in with society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have a I have a good friend. Actually, she was over last night. Who's um, she says? Oh, he's Holler's definitely my my uh, alter ego. And I'm like, yeah, I want I want him to be more people's <laughs> alter egos. So um, it sounds like he is. They just haven't read him yet. Yeah. To define that, we so, were getting back to what you were writing. Yeah, let, next. let's get back so, to the original question that you asked before you interrupted yourself. <laughs> I never okay. do that. I so know the, what you're uh, talking about. <laughs> The idea of the book, without getting too much into detail, is that... um, Why don't you get too much into detail? This is a podcast where you're talking about your epic writing. Right. But I I don't know how it's going to change. But the the, the idea is that um, there are these um, meetings and conflicts for a variety of reasons between the people of the nine Norse worlds. But they happen one at a time. So each book is a, a meeting between let's say humans and Jotuns or the giants of the Norse world and what happens when they, they try to live in a kind of, they come into conflict, they try and live in a kind of harmony and the idea is to build up sort of a, a mythological city where they can all start to live together again um, and the idea is they've been divided since 
know, some ancient times. So it's it's kind of a construct so that I can bring these different groups together who represent different things in our own society. Like um, yeah, the, the Jotun, who are the giants in Norse mythology, they're literally the devourers. That's how the Norse, you know, define them, the devourers. And what does that mean in our society? And you can, you know, we'll get into political discussions, but you can, you know, talk about who are the devourers, who aren't. Um, and then how does that, how do the um, human antagonists kind of deal with these devourers? And so it sounds like a nine-part book. Did I just hear that? That well, there are it, nine it, parts to this book, know, technically? I'm trying to write a trilogy first, and then I'll think about <laughs> two more trilogies. I think we all need to encourage Mark to write nine books in this series, because that but, sounds um, kind of epic. But it's the idea, yeah. So th- that's the idea. I don't know if it's going to work. I'm like 40-something pages into a, into a first book. So, but I feel like I'm going to finish the book, Hell or High Water, right? Can I say that in a podcast? <laughs> Hell or High Water. Oh, this uh, is a totally rated R right. podcast. You can so, say fuck if you want to. I right. just did. So, uh, <laughs> I'm going to finish this book, when I come what may, uh, even if I'm hating it, and uh, so that I can determine what I'm going to do next. So, that's where I am. That's very cool. Do you get writer's block? <sighs> It's a hard or a question. Form, like people say, writer's block, and from every like TV show or whatever, we anticipate that people can't actually put words out. But I find that writer's block is different for every writer. Like, what causes them to stop being able to write? Do you yeah, have something I that stops you? You know, I can always write. Right, I can write something. I can write an essay, or I can write another story. I like. I don't have a hard time writing. What I have a hard time is getting it a couple of chapters in. To something and then saying, ah, I'm, I'm not sure where this is going. And uh, I, I'm going to stop this and put it aside and then maybe try something else. When I've done that a number of times uh, over the last couple of years. And I've, I've probably started like five, six different books, not including, you know, like children's books and things like that, which we're writing together. He's um, gesturing to his wife. Nobody can see that, but his lovely... You want to say hi? Say hi. You're here. Hi. Yes. Yeah. So the book is about cats that are pirates. <laughs> Cat I'm, pirates. I'm really on board with it. She's, yeah, I'm really on board. She conceived the cats, idea of cat pirates, and uh, <laughs> we, are, we are committed to the cat pirate uh, concept. <laughs> We are all so, committed to the cat pirate concept. All of us at this, all yes, of us yeah. at Drinking with are, Authors are committed. We to are the all pa- in on the cat pirates. Yeah. Yeah. There's a female cat pirate whose name is Sassafras Mallshot. She's got an eye patch and a big fang. What's not to love? Yeah, I would read that. I would yeah, totally, totally read that. Read I would it. be that character. Totally I'd dress read up it. as that. Yeah. Okay. We have a cat. He says. Okay. Um, anyway, <laughs> so the idea here is, uh, I was trying to think of a concept that I could kind of create a narrative across a variety of different books. And also talk about some actual, you know, ideas in our, our culture, all the conflicts. There's so much sort of cultural dissonance and conflict right now, um, you know, within the United States, but also globally. And I, I thought, well, this would be an interesting uh, way to kind of talk about those ideas in a fantastical way. I think that's not a gr- bad idea. I think it's interesting because I think when confronted with a lot of the stuff that is, is happening, not only in the United States, but globally... Having a different way to look at it and a d- sort of a different voice to it makes it sometimes easier for people to actually get to the root or the sort of the philosophical questions. Yeah, what's involved. the underlying conflict? Exactly. Versus Sorry. being able to confront when you see the news sometimes, you kind of just want to shut it off and not look at it. But I, 
I think right? that's a great concept. It's, it's a safe way to explore a philosophical idea without feeling like you're, you know, trapped in a political conflict right now. You know, so I can see that. So here's the thing. I'm, you're talking about working on, you're like four, 40 pages in, you said, or like book one. Mm-hmm. Does knowing that you've got this big plan for these following up, I mean, is that kind of impacting the way you feel about working on this first book? Knowing that there's uh, this, you know, so, multiple books ahead of you potentially. So, so what I've done is kind of committed to writing the first book, and then if it goes okay, I'll, I'll commit myself to writing a trilogy. I have no idea after that, you know, but I feel like if I if I don't sort of commit to it, that I won't put aside the time, you know, get right. up early in the morning and put a couple hours in, and on the weekends, you know, put in the hours on it then. If I don't make a commitment, it won't happen. You know, it's just too easy to, to not do something. Yeah, and do you write as you go, or do you actually create a really detailed outline of the entire story beforehand? I generally don't create an outline. Um, I have created outlines for books I haven't written. Mm-hmm. Um, and Or the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> For the tollkeeper, I started to create outlines halfway through it, thinking, I, I'm not sure where they're going. Okay, well, let's put some structure on it. So um, with this book, I have general ideas, and um, sometimes I don't know until a character tells me what's going to happen. You know, like I, sometimes I really can't figure out what's going to happen until I'm in a scene, and then the character has to make a decision or do something and then it changes, and I can't always anticipate that well. Do you? Uh, do your characters surprise you? Yeah, all the time. How easy is it for you to get in the headspace of your characters? Because I know, like for instance, Austin does make a research and, and outlining and stuff like that. He's very organized. I say that in comparison to me, <laughs> because I organize nothing when I write. I just like I I actually know where I kind of want the story to go, so I try to get there. But it's very character-driven and where I'm at at that time and stuff like that. So when it comes to writing, do you feel like it's easier to get organized or do the characters literally have to talk their way into situations and then it's fun to resolve the situations they get themselves into or the direction they take you? Is it like, are you along for the ride, I guess, is my question. Yeah, it's kind of a a combination. I'm very organized in my business writing. You know, I'm all about the outlines and stuff like that. Well, we know this from your review checking during our pause. But But in terms of the writing, it's kind of a combination. And I... I, I think I just can't always anticipate what's going to happen. I have an idea, hmm. but sometimes I'll wake up in the morning and say, oh, yeah, that's what I should be doing, or that's what could happen, or maybe that's what the character should be doing. So I'll often, in the wee hours of the morning, suddenly realize things after having slept on something. Yeah, is so that I your prime writing time? Well, it's my prime discovery time mm. if I'm not actually writing. Um, and I... I can't always anticipate that in an outline. That's the problem. Is I, I can write an outline, but then I may get to a section. I'm like, ah, it's not going to work any longer. This, this character wouldn't do that anymore. You know, now that I know the character better, now the person's fleshed out. I know that um, as much as I'd like them to do that, they're just not going to do that. How so. how many? Um, so writers are very different, and you know, part of this podcast is. Um, for writers to listen to and understand where they're at and stuff. How many words do you write, like, in a day? So if you spend a couple hours writing, how many words, what's your word count generally? Oh, I don't I don't know. Um, usually I worry more about the time than the words because the words vary so much. Hmm. Um, but I, 
I would like to write within a two-hour period anywhere from 500 to 1,000 words. I'm not sure I always hit that. But let's say that's sort of my, my goal. Now, if it's really literary writing, like some of the chapters in this book, where I like, have one chapter that's mostly based on um, Norse poetry, you know, trying to follow the actual structure of that. And that, that just takes time. You can't do that, um, you know, in two hours. I can't write a thousand words of that. So it just kind of depends upon the type of writing being done. Who's your favorite character in your book? I think the main character, yeah, the narrator. Who's your least favorite character in the book? Which one was hard to write? So the one I like least or the one that was hardest to write? Yeah, well, either are, one of those. That's two different questions. questions. Okay, those sorry. Different questions no, you, preface, you preface the question, Austin. <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, who is, who is a character you relate to so little that you found it difficult to get into his or her head? Mm. I, I relate to everybody, I think. I relate to the good guys, the bad guys, and uh, I think... I could tame the entire universe, as Walt, <laughs> as Walt Whitman would say. Whoa. Walt Whitman, you know, it's like the whole everybody's within us. But so, but I think the person I had the hardest time with is one of the uh, the Norns, uh, the, the Norns of, of Norse mythology, the three. They're known as the Fates and other types of mythologies, oh, yeah. and, and they cross a lot of different mythologies: the the Roman and the Greek, and then there's a bunch of others in addition to the Norse, and there are always. Usually three women. Uh, they usually represent three types of, of things in the Norse mythology. It's present, um, past, and future. And the, the Norn that represents the future, I think I had the hardest time getting into her head and mm. trying to figure out what, what her deal was. Um, she's very important to the book, but I think I spent a lot of time thinking about her and trying to figure out what's really driving this person. Do you think, um, are there characters you've attempted to write but had a really difficult time writing them? Like, we tend to, th to think like ourselves, right? So trying to think like a character can be sometimes different. Like, if a character does something dramatically different from what you would do, um, sort of in a sense, do you, do you ever run into that with characters where you're writing something and you're like, I either I don't know where to go with this or... This is just too much, and I'm not going down this path. I I don't think I've had that problem. Maybe it's because I've not I haven't written my entire life fiction, but um, I think I could write anybody and feel fairly good about it. There's certain characters I haven't written and haven't had a desire to write, but that doesn't mean I won't in the future. You know, like who is the bad guy in the story? Is there a bad guy? Well, there there are bad people. Well, there's, there's somebody there's, that enslaves them. That's obviously <laughs> not good. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's a number of people that are you know quote unquote bad guys. Um, probably in the past there are, in, in this past life there are two particular bad guys, real antagonists, um, maybe three, and in the the future the present day there's really it boils down to two, one with. Um, one with sort of magical, mythical powers, a mythical character, and another that's a, sort of a human being that's kind of following that person's lead. So, I don't know. Did I answer your question? Well, let me let me rephrase the question. You also uh, should rephrase the question, obviously. What do you feel like is the central driving <laughs> conflict in this narrative? 
Yeah, it's a good question. The central driving conflict is coming to terms with identity. You know, it's, it's really mm-hmm. trying to figure out how this person evolves from the first chapter to the last mm-hmm. and how this person who wants nothing to do, he's, he's very much, uh, you know, in the Joseph Campbell way. It's, uh, it's a hero, hero of a thousand faces. Hero of a thousand faces. And his face is, is very, very, very reluctant and skeptical and cynical about human beings and pretty pissed off in general. And then he has to, um, through his course of his lifetime, through the course of the story, which is really two stories, he has to start caring about something and believing in mm. something, which is a hard thing for him to do. I think it's a hard thing for you know a lot of people to do. So that and that's sort of the, it's sort of the transformation of that character over right. time. Well, since we, since we have invoked Campbell at this point. What would you say that uh, Holler believes or doesn't believe at the beginning of the story and does or doesn't at the end of the story? How does his belief change? Let me pull out the evoking. (laughs) Well, I I think that his belief toward the beginning is is fairly nihilistic. You know, he doesn't really believe Mm. in a lot. You know, he just believes people are basically scum. (laughs) And uh, he has to just get through it. And he's not all that pleased about himself either. Um, And then he has to come to terms with with believing in something that matters and then finding something that matters and being actually willing in, in a way to give it up too for some greater for some greater good. You know, it's not that he's turned into some new super noble person, but he's turned into someone that actually is not a nihilist, um, that believes in something kind of against his against his uh, former nature. Hmm. How so. is that to write? So it's very interesting when you write characters that are able to make that transition. And then it's interesting to write characters that can't kind of change who they actually are at, at the core. You know what I mean? Do you feel like um, it was difficult to make that, that leap or easy when he has to change and, and believe in something different than he does to start with? Well, it's a, for him, it's a, a journey, you know, a real hero's journey. So he has to go through a lot of stuff to get there. Um, so I, I don't think it, it's hard. It's just sort of the story that gets told. It's sort of his story that, that kind of tells me as much as I tell it. Um, there is a character in the book that doesn't have much of an arc, who just believes um, in sort of a real Superman stuff, Nietzsche stuff, you mm. know, like... He starts off that way. Yeah, the Ubermensch. He starts off that way, finishes that way, and that's his core belief. And there's no, he doesn't feel any reason to change it. If anything, he feels a reason to um, really grasp onto it and kind of defy other people that want him to change it. Hmm. So, um, and I think those people are, are, I think those people are all of us. Like I, I've seen so many people that want to grasp onto their ideology so with, with such incredibly tenacity, you know, and um, they refuse to give it up. It's just part of their core character. And they're not going to change. I mean, they're like, if you're a libertarian man, you're a libertarian for life. Like, mm-hmm. I'm not saying that's always the case, but, I, but I've known people <laughs> yes, like for, that. To our libertarian listeners, he wasn't singling listeners. you out. No, no, no. <laughs> but, uh, I'm just kidding. We don't have any libertarian listeners. It's, but I'm just saying that 
And wow, could... we literally just banned an entire audience in 2.5 seconds. Okay. Watson so, is drunk. Don't listen to him. I, I'm not saying that all libertarians are like that. I'm saying that there's there are people, and I'm sure there's people like that who are super liberals. I mean, there's in every political category. I'm just thinking of a couple of people I know personal to me. No, no I um, ab- absolutely agree. Across the political spectrum, there is a tendency to want to cling to an ideology at the expense of everything else because you're so right. invested in it, right, right, that you are not willing to change your outlook. And, you know, I have a lot of admiration for someone who can uh, take on new information and say, you know what, maybe I was wrong about something. Right. So, And the other part of that is that people can also be very tribal and ideas don't matter. Mm-hmm. Well, the reason I talk about libertarians because ideas matter to libertarians. For other people, it's only the tribal nature. Mm-hmm. And they don't even care what's behind those beliefs. So the beliefs may change, right? Right, more like sports teams. More like sports teams, yeah. exactly. All right, I'm a Buffalo Bills fan. Oh, <laughs> Buffalo Bills. So, you know, it's... Do you mean the put the lotion in the basket, Buffalo Bills? <laughs> I'm just asking, because that's one that's, of my favorites. That's a different genre of literature, which maybe we'll cover in our next episode. Fine, but, fine. Okay, during the break, <laughs> we talked just a little bit about the business side of this. Yeah. And normally, you know, Erica asks these questions. But I just I wanted. Are you being me today? I, I'm gonna I'm gonna be Erica for just a moment because okay. at some do point. Do a higher voice. Do a higher voice. <laughs> I, think we're, I think we're in about the same register. I think we're I in the same pitch range. Is that what's happening? But okay. here's the thing: at some point, you are finished with the creative part of the of the process, the the literary part of the process, and you have to start thinking about things like cover design and marketing and you know the technological aspects of putting things online so how Using was an it? editor yeah Use an editor yeah okay good. Sorry. Uh, you know, that that's, that's still really part of the literary process but at I some know, point I... at some point you have to move out of I'm writing a novel and into I am releasing a novel I'm right. publishing a novel so talk sure. about I'm the selling a book yeah talk about that transition I think it's a really and I, I think you should only do that if you're interested in small pressdom or self-publishing or indie publishing. Um, if you don't, if you have no interest in marketing or any of those type of things, just don't don't do it. Go out and go to a traditional publishing house because you need to put on the marketing hat. You need to understand how um, keywords work in Amazon searches. You know, you have to understand all that stuff. And I'm not great at it. I've had to learn a lot over the last year, but um, what, there's, there's okay, so I gotta ask to you. So the Tollkeeper, based on everything our listeners have just heard, what are the two genres? Because you get two on Amazon. What two are, <laughs> is this book under? Oh, yeah, what did you geez. have to pick? No pressure, but you picked <laughs> two. So where did right, you right, put right. it? I can't. I can't remember. Um, <laughs> I would have to look it up. But I, I think it was. I think it was fantasy literature and. Um, I don't know. I have to look it up. The struggle uh, was real. The struggle was real. <laughs> but I've, I've, changed, I've changed it a couple of times. Yes. So, um, oh, really? It might be, yeah. You, you recategorized it after I recategorized it, was, it okay. yeah. Because uh, I found what prompted that, that? Because um, certain categories turn up more searches, you know, and more readers, basically. And so it's just part of the marketing process. If you, if you picked a wrong category or category that's not working, then a repick a category. You, know, you actually you have very symmetrical initials. I just realized this because you've got the MV going on. J.R.R. Tolkien has that wonderful logo that he does with his name where he has the J, right, and it turns into a T, and then he's got the two mirrored R's coming off either side of it. So you could do something very much like that with an M and a V. I can't do that. My... 
the, the, the S and the C just don't work at all. You're going to have to scribble that in a napkin so I can totally visualize that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I've been happy to steal that. Yeah, you know, he, um, has, he has a logo with his initials that people actually use as tattoos. That's how popular oh, it really? is. Oh, yeah. really? Well, I'm... Yeah, no, definitely not J.R. Tolkien. But um, no, I think people should totally get your name tattooed on them. I think that's like the pinnacle that, is, that you've made it. If somebody tattooed is something, yes, yes, that is that they tattooed some part of your work on their body. Right. So my dream is to have a little a little convention where everybody read. Wears a tollkeeper shirt, like a Florida <laughs> tollkeeper shirt, and just have. Are there tollkeeper shirts in yeah, existence? Where you do you find tollkeeper shirts? On tollkeepers all over Florida. No, yeah, you can buy them, but um, yeah, they eBay. have all the. eBay. eBay. Well, eBay. I think there's right multiple places to buy them, but you can buy. Uh, you know, they have like parts of the state, and they have like alligators, and they're really cool. They're awesome. So is tollkeeper.com the primary place that people should go if they want to get information about you, or do you have yeah. an Amazon author page that's your primary uh, sort of point of contact, or what's no, the... Uh, th- yeah, com is probably the best okay. place. Thetollkeeper.com. Yeah, um, but it's, you know, I also have a Goodreads page. They can reach out to me there. I have a I have an Amazon page. I'm not even sure if do you, you can you reach out to me that way. Do you I Instagram? Tweet. I, I tweet. I don't really. I have an Instagram account, but I don't really use it. What I have is on Facebook. I have uh, the Tollkeeper Facebook page. So, so, so it's Facebook.com slash The Tollkeeper? Yeah, I think so. Okay. <laughs> By the way, this is going to be in all the show notes since he t- is not very good at the shameless self aspect. But just by the way, I feel like he's called out all of you Instagrammers there. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we need to get him Instagramming a little bit more. So I think you should hit him up on Instagram mm-hmm. and take pictures of yourself with his book so he can comment on it. I think that would be wickedly cool. Absolutely. Oh, that'd be great. I'd, I'd be a convert then. Um, but not a lot is on my Instagram page. Okay. So. so How about wearing a Tollkeeper t-shirt while holding a copy of the Tollkeeper? I think that would be... Literally, that should be called out every single time that yes. happens. Mm-hmm. So what is... Um, so the website's the best way to reach you, thetollkeeper.com? I think so, yeah. Okay, and what is your up-and-coming book? What Do you, do you have a name for it yet? Um... No pressure. Well, Name it now. We need to say it on this podcast. Yeah, let's actually come up with a title live right here on the air. <laughs> on the air. You have to stick to it because it will be viral. Go. Yeah, I, I don't have a the, – the working title is something like uh, The Founding of Othlam. And it's the name of the place. But the name may change. But it's The Founding of – because this is the first book in the series and they're sort of founding a – a, what becomes a city over time. And this could be either a trilogy or perhaps a nonogy based on... Is, is that an actual word? Yes, it is. Okay. I believe you right now. A nonogy. Go ahead and continue. Nonogy. Yeah, I <laughs> don't know that either, but okay. Yeah, it, possibly. You know, I'll be happy if I get through the first book, but I, I'd love it to be... When... When yes, I will get through the first book. And I will have you back on at that time. When you're ready to pu- publish that first book. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yeah. What do you have to say to all uh, writers out there? What is your advice? No pressure. Did you see the long, dramatic pause? Yeah, yeah to readers, it's buy my book. But to writers, uh, I, I don't know. I no, so, so there's, <laughs> <laughs> there's this word, uh, a phrase, actually, in Japanese. And, uh, and I, I lived in Japan for a little while. And um, when you when you live in Japan and you're watching the Olympics, they're always like "Gambe Nippon," like like 
like keep at it basically and um that's that's what i would say is just keep at it so and what situation do people say that when they're watching the olympics do they say like oh man good try <laughs> no it's just <laughs> keep trying man because you know japan isn't a, a awesome power in everything like uh the, the u.s or the, the russians or whatever or china these days um, but they do, you know, they have some great athletes. Um, but no matter what, you know, even if you're in 10th place rather than, you know, first place, just keep at it, man. Just keep, keep doing it. Just keep, keep doing it. it. I like it. So, Mark, I want to thank you for being on our podcast. We really appreciate it. I am Erica Lance. And I'm Austin Scott Collins. And this was Drinking with Authors. We look forward to hearing from you again. Or are you listening again? Words. <laughs> <laughs>